Good morning, everyone, and happy International Women's Day. Um, my name is Linda Javen, and I'll be chairing this session on The Other Black Girl with Zakia Dalila Harris. Um, first, I want to acknowledge that we are meeting on unceded Ghana territory. <laughs> How are you? Um, and <laughs> and uh, we pay our respects to the Ghana people, to their elders past, present, and future, to their cultural heritage and their sacred sites. Um, I'm not sure if I really need to do COVID messaging at this point, but you know, keep your distance, keep your masks on as much as possible and follow the directions from your friendly ushers. I am so delighted to be speaking with Zakia Dalila Harris about her absolutely stunning debut novel, The Other Black Girl. Hello. Zakia, give a nice warm welcome to Zakia. <laughs> um, Zakia spent three years at a major publishing house in the US before leaving to write what has to be one of the hottest novels of our time. It's her first novel and 14 publishing houses bid for the manuscript, and it debuted at number six on the New York Times bestseller list. Oprah Daly called The Other Black Girl a novel that is spot on for our times. I believe she's speaking to us from Brooklyn, where she lives, is that right? Um, yes. But yes, Brooklyn. Fantastic. But Zakia and I, but Zakia grew up outside New Haven, Connecticut, in a town about an hour's drive or train ride from the one I grew up. So, fellow nutmegger, welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is really exciting. This book is so, it is so fabulous. It is so original, and it's it's it it blends really important. It takes it asks really important social questions that are relevant for Australia as well as the United States. Um, and it does it with so many twists and turns, and we're not going to give you any spoilers here, but I, I have said, I have seen people describe it as a kind of a combination between um, The Devil Wears Prada and Get Out. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, I would add The Matrix to that. <laughs> what is... <laughs> What inspired you? I, I believe it came from an encounter you had in the women's restrooms. Tell us about that. Yes. Oh, my gosh. First of all, thank you so much, Linda, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, Adelaide, for having me. I am so excited. This is all still so surreal for me. Um, and thank you, everyone, for coming out. Um, yeah, so I haven't gotten the matrix mentioned too often, so I'm very excited about that. Um, this, <laughs> um, but the story came from, as you mentioned, um, a very specific interaction. So I'd been working at Penguin Random House for a couple of years. I was an editorial assistant and then an assistant editor for kind of a hot minute. Um, and right around this time, I was a little fatigued um, for various reasons. Um, and all of those things kind of culminated in this moment in the bathroom. I was washing my hands in the bathroom sink. Sorry. <laughs> um, and, you know, just life is happening. Um, <laughs> washing my hands in the bathroom sink. And another black woman came out of the bathroom stall um, a few feet away from me. And I was like, who is this woman? Like washing my hands, kind of looking at her thinking, okay, maybe, you know, maybe we'll be friends. Maybe something will happen here because I was the only uh, full-time black woman working in editorial at the time. Um, so I'm kind of like, you know, signaling my like black girl laser beams um, <laughs> and thought we'd have a moment and nothing happened. She did not really notice me. Thought we'd have like a, yay, we're here we're both black women. This is really cool. Nothing like that happens. Um, and so I went back to my desk and I was like, that was really weird. Like maybe it wasn't signaling enough, but then I was like, also, no, like <laughs> that was just a strange experience for me because I was taught, you know, you nod at the other black person in the room, really the other person of color, especially in publishing 
just so white. So, so it was just this, this comical for me because I'm, I'm very much in my head all the time. Like Nella is this comical moment where I was like, why was I so not obsessed, but like really thinking we'd have this moment. And then why was I so disappointed? And then I literally sat back down at my desk and started writing this on my, I think on my work stationery. <laughs> That's great. And now, the novel has been, we're going to get into a lot of the, the details, but I want to go into one big question. And the novel has been praised in a number of places as fearless. I would like to hear your take on that. Why do people consider it, I, why do people consider it so fearless, in your opinion? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think part of it, of course, is the fact that a lot of it um, really, like I, like I mentioned before, uh, comes from my own personal experiences, not directly because that would be really terrifying if I did experience everything <laughs> in this book, um, but definitely putting my, I put a lot of my vulnerability out there of what it's like to just, first of all, be a millennial living in uh, Brooklyn, commuting to Manhattan, which is like, at least where I was, it was about an hour away each way every day, hoping that I'd get promoted, hoping that I'd get to edit one day, because there, there is a whole ladder that you have to climb. And we talked about it as assistants, um, but we didn't really talk about it outside of the industry. So I, I think that's partly why. Um, I, I think also the fact that one of my publishing houses here that I worked at when I was up in Random House, they also bid on the book. <laughs> so that was also <laughs> an interesting kind of like, yeah, like, I know who, you know, people have suggested this is this person. So that's one thing. But it also has a lot of uh, genre twists that, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm, we're not doing spoilers, but I, I'm a big horror fan, a big Twilight Zone fan, um, Jordan Peele. So it does some things that a lot of people do not see coming. And it was, uh, you know, it was interesting writing it in a vacuum at first, but I ultimately just had a lot of fun. Like it was, this book is really me. So, so maybe that's, that's where fearless comes from. <laughs> it is, it is so much fun. And, um, and there's no reason why you can't combine fun with horror. <laughs> um, that's, that's yeah. actually, yes. Um, in fact, yesterday I did a session on Dickens and they were talking about how Dickens combines tragedy and comedy all the time. And I think, I think that actually the guy who was writing about Dickens was talking about how one amplifies the other. And I think that's what you yeah. do really beautifully. Um, now, th there's something, um, you know, we both grew up in Connecticut. Um, <laughs> Connecticut is, uh, <laughs> Connecticut has a number of different qualities, but um, when I was growing up, and <clears throat> I'm sure it's the same, um, it was often said, and it's common in a lot of parts of the United States, but you know, Connecticut's one of those places. There are three subjects you don't talk about at the dinner table or in polite company, sex, politics, and religion. But it's really interesting, race is not on the list. And that's, you know, how difficult <laughs> is it to have conversations about, around race in the company of the sort of people who might use phrases such as polite company, the sort of white middle-class people that you would find in publishing, for example. How, how difficult is it to have these conversations around race? I mean, it's... It's, it's so difficult in the sense that, like, even just pinpointing that there is an issue going on um, can be really hard. I mean, microaggressions are one of the things that, you know, end up that conversation about what those even mean for people of color, um, you know, people in the LGBTQI uh, um, group, like all of those things. Like, it's hard to really uh, put a finger on a moment that feels uncomfortable. And, and Nella even has a moment like that in the book with an author where she's trying to point out, you know, there, there's a problematic character that you've written, a problematic black character. And, and how do you explain that something feels racist, right? Like, so th those kind of things are, are really difficult. I think also for me, just on a personal level, um, I wasn't really talking about race until my early 20s because I grew up very much sheltered in the sense that um, I grew up in a mostly white neighborhood. My school was mostly white. Um, I had those conversations about race at home 
and knew what my family had gone through, you know, before me, generations before. But, uh, you know, in elementary school, it was very much like Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, you know, links and Jews, like very much like of the past, right, rather than the present. And so it definitely has been an interesting journey, I think, in the last, especially last couple of years, um, especially 2020, the year that was had all over the world, but especially um, in the States. Uh, it's been an interesting ride, but I'm, I'm hoping that, again, conversations like these and, and book clubs and, and just all that good stuff, I'm hoping that's helping, you know, because <laughs> it can be really hard. It can be really hard to talk about. Yeah, it's really important to have a lot of um, books and movies and television shows bringing this to the fore. And then you have um, in the book, um, tell us a little bit about Chartricia. <laughs> Because she's, <laughs> she's an example of how race often enters the conversation via, say, a white author. And, and, and what yeah, I'm really interested yeah. in is, tell us a little bit about who is Chartricia, but Nella's kind of conflicted, Nella, the main character, who is the assistant editor in this publishing house, she, she doesn't know how to talk to her, her boss about Chartricia. So if you can just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, so Chartricia really represents, um, especially at the beginning of the book, a lot of what Nella has been trying to navigate um, as being the only Black person in the office up until Hazel joins the office. And so Chartricia is a, a young Black woman who uh, was penned by a white author named Colin Franklin. Um, Colin Franklin keeps the light on, uh, the lights on at Wagner Books. He is uh, the instant made to, from book to TV, to movie, all of that stuff. Um, he's the most prized author uh, that Nella assists for her editor boss, Vera. And so Nella has this great problem of, okay, so Chartricia was created, um, she senses, and she's right, that Chartricia was created and added into this book about the opioid epidemic because he just wanted to add another black person in there for diversity. Um, and performative diversity, performative politics is, is best thing I read throughout this book. Um, but it's most, it's most clear through this uh, scene where Nella has to now sit down with her boss, Vera, a, a waspy white woman, and Colin, a white man with a very delicate, tender ego, um, and kind of give her feedback on this book. And she's like, I need to tell them. I can't be that black assistant who just let this go um, because everyone's going to point at me and be like, why didn't you do anything? But also, why should she have to do anything? Like, this might jeopardize her career. So those two things are things that a lot of people, um, I mean, <laughs> anyone of any identity has to kind of navigate, you know, well, is this my responsibility to speak up or do I just play the, the long game of going along with it and, and hoping I can exact change, you know, once I've raised up in the ranks. So, so yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> the, the other thing I'll say is, so Trisha's named after the color of her dress, which she's just a stereotype, uh, chartreuse dress, by the way. She's a stereotype in all the ways, like has a lot of baby daddies. She just speaks in this accent that's, also problematic. So, so I really had, I wanted to have fun with it, and, but also point at those questions about like what actual diversity looks like, what intentional um, diversity looks like, and also empathy too. Yeah, and, it, and, and you do that so well. And one of the, I mean, what you were just saying about, so there's Nella, and she's like, oh my God, this horrible stereotype in this book, and I have to sacrifice so much if I speak up, and yet if I don't speak up. And you talk about in the book, at one point, um, Nella's describing the exhaustion that comes from the constant need to fight against white superiority, the daily microaggressions, the unending stream of police killings in the, in the newspaper, of all the injustice. And there's a sense that white people at Wagner want, want black people to be in a certain way. And she says at some point, she goes, the, the, what you have to do is be everyone's best friend, be sassy, be confident, but also be deferential, be spiritual, but also be down to earth, be woke, but still keep some of that sleep in your eyes too. So what's the difference between Nella 
I mean, we, we, I'm not going to give anything away, but uh, when we first meet Hazel, Nella senses Hazel is different. So could you talk about that perception of what Hazel does? Because Hazel is the other black girl. She comes into this thing. And suddenly, all these really difficult, like Nella's banging on these doors, and they just swing wide open for Hazel. So talk, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, Hazel was kind of kind of came out of my worst nightmare. Um, <laughs> I think as like <laughs> someone who can be very much like I just want people to like me and like I want to be this person's best friend. And then why isn't this person reciprocating? Um, and that's not too much of a spoiler. I mean, right off the bat, it's very um, you know it's it's just an interesting relationship that Noah has to navigate. And for me, when I was writing this, Hazel was really. Uh, representative of like, uh, you know, ideal blackness, commercialized blackness, um, which is something I'm also constantly thinking about, even myself as a, as a black author now, it's, it's, it's <laughs> definitely a mind world. But um, yeah, so Hazel is that, I mean, she's cool, she's composed, she's from Harlem. She really moves in this way that shows that she's very confident and um, we're in Nella's head for a lot of this book, and we see that Nella's not confident. She's, she, like you uh, mentioned, I'm, I'm so glad you read that that quote. Thank you, because that really kind of sums up these gymnastics um, that Nella is constantly making or feels like she's constantly needs to make, right? Because that's the other thing is she's like, not even, no one has said this to her directly. No one has ever told her, like, you know, you need to do this. You need to... Uh, like read these kinds of books, but it's all just coded and everything like any industry is. It's, it's, it's really hidden beneath the way people talk, the way questions are posed in the office. So, so when Hazel comes in and has this easy way, easy go at it, um, it's like really frustrating, but also at the same time now is like, but wait, like maybe this is good. And, and that's, it's something that she also has to navigate and does it very awkwardly. <laughs> yeah, and like there's there's a Hazel with her huge dreadlocks and her Harlem background, mm -hmm. and she runs this sort of uh, um, kind of a charity to help young black um, women poets and writers. She does all this stuff, and yet when she goes into the office for the first time with the two white editors, um, they're talking about some real like white people issues. I can't really remember what it was, but they're having this kind of session and they're like complaining about the sandwiches somewhere. Some, I mean, it was kind of a funny thing. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. Nell is going like, oh my God. And she's looking at Hazel and Hazel's making all the murmuring nice noises. You say here, um, one of your characters says, talks about, I'm, I'm doing this so that I don't give away anything, but one of your characters talks about a river of Uncle Toms flowing beneath the shiny plastic <laughs> surface of corporate white America. <laughs> is this something... <laughs> it's such a good line. Um, is this something that you have gotten any blowback against from, say, other black writers or people in the, in the, in the, black, in the, in the black American community? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I haven't, um, I haven't gotten back about that, interestingly enough. Not to say that it's not coming and it hasn't happened, but um, I was concerned about that, though. A, a lot of, I mean, I think about this a lot. I mean, I, I kind of, when I was talking about Shertrisha, I believe in the book, I said something like, she sounds like a Tyler Perry character down in her luck. And I sometimes think about that. I'm like, what do people think about that, <laughs> you know? Um, but I really wanted to kind of posit all of the, the conversations that I'm having with my own black friends about race, about like, is this a problematic thing? Is did this black author, like or this black author's work, what do you think about it? Like, do we, do we love it for these reasons? Like all of those are things that we talk about. Um, and there's never really a clear cut side that we're on necessarily. Um, although there are, there are a few things I would say we are clear cut on in terms of like, you know, conservative rhetoric and all that stuff, but we'll go down that rabbit hole. Um, so the long, the short answer, I guess, is, is no, thankfully. <laughs> 
it's so incisive. And you know, you just meant you hinted at something um, before when you were talking about LGBTQI and so on. There's so many. I mean, the, the the word intersectionality obviously comes to mind. One of the other really taboo subjects, I think, I don't know if you agree, in the United States, certainly in Connecticut, <laughs> is the idea of class. <laughs> and there's yeah. there's always been this illusion. Yeah that unlike Mother England, you know, the US is a melting pot and it's a land of opportunity and everyone is equal, there's no class. But I grew up there. I know there's so many classes and it's so rigid. And it's you know more, the truth. Yeah, and it's more rigid for not being <laughs> acknowledged. Um, would you like to talk about how the issues of class and race intersect in the other brown girl? The other black girl, what did I just say? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> They're black and brown. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because when I was reflecting upon, like, I, I can't I can't stress this enough how much of this really came from my experiences, but also specifically essays that I was writing uh, when I did my MFA in nonfiction writing a few years before, and I was really looking back at my time um, in Hamden, Connecticut, and like thinking about interactions I had and. Um, specifically, especially when I went to high school and was sort of around other Black people, finally had a couple classes with other Black people because our classes were very segregated too in terms of, of levels, you know? And so uh, having people say, like, you talk like a, a white girl, Black people say that to me um, or about me was like a very strange thing. And so I was analyzing kind of why that is and, and thinking about where it came from. And it's it, really has to do with the fact that my, when my, uh, let's see, when the time came for me to go to, my older sister and I to go to school, my dad moved us to a specific town, um, or neighborhood, I'm sorry, in Hamden, Connecticut, that had the best public school. Um, and so that happened to be this one particular school that at the time was very much mostly white, and the neighborhood was almost all white. Um, and that definitely influenced my entire life. And that's because my dad at the time was able to afford that. Um, and so I really wanted to explore that, what that looks like for, for Nella in the book and all of the characters as well. And I haven't talked about her yet, but Diana Gordon, who is the hot shot author, um, uh, who is a big deal, has been a big deal for years. Um, I, I touched a little bit upon her experiences growing up as like upper middle class, upper class. Um, and that affects respectability politics, that reflect, uh, affects how people oftentimes feel like they should respond to things, uh, if they should speak up. And, and so all of those are things that I, I just really wanted to talk about, especially in the industry of publishing, where it is so hard to work there on what they pay you, especially as an assistant. Like I, I was able to make it work, but I was definitely uh, at a time, you know, like saving, trying to save money, like was not a thing. Um, and you really have to have either help or another job to be an assistant there. So so that of course affects who works there too. It's, it's just all connected. Um, and. I, yeah, I was. I really wanted to put that in there, but not hammer people, you know, over the head with it because that's also not fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's so interesting, um, and of course another ish, another area. Um, and by the way, my high school was probably almost half black because there was two better high schools that the wealthy people, the wealthy white people all sent their kids to. So it was a very, uh, <laughs> interesting. it was a different sort interesting. of, yeah. So that, yeah, you, it's very interesting because you get these different senses, but we always thought, oh, the, the middle class, upper class people, they all went to those schools, you know, to get away from our school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it really is, it really is a thing, isn't it? Um, it being internet, yeah. yeah. It, it being um, International Women's Day, here anyway, you'll get there tomorrow, um, the, I want to talk also about the other intersectional topic, and it contains really complex and interesting topics around gender and how gender and race intersect. And so Wagner is this fictional publishing company, um, and it's uh, run by Richard Wagner. 
and he's kind of the, the mysterious patriarch, you know, at the top of this organization. Everybody looks at him like, is he smiling? You know, what, what's the story? You get a little bit nervous if you're hanging outside his office and all that kind of thing. Um, so nearly everyone in power except for Richard that we meet is female. Um, and the other males, with a few exceptions, like the grumpy cover designer, Leonard, they're all kind of men of color found in places like the mailroom, right? So we have this really yeah. interesting gender thing going on as well. And yet, not all of the women, there's not a lot of solidarity in there either. So could you talk about the gender politics in the novel? Yeah, I mean... Really, it was I was thinking about the environment that I worked in um, <laughs> and that I know is kind of widespread across the publishing board, at least at the time when I was writing this, which was 2019. Um, it seems like, um, and I'm speaking specifically about just like who was at the very top and who was not. And oftentimes it was men. It was men at the very, very top and and women were, white women mostly, uh, were below them and, and sort of like that. I mean, I'm, I'm also glad you brought up the mailman because um, I really wanted to include that kind of dynamic too. Going back to the class conversation just really quickly because it was another strange thing to be working in publishing and be the only black person, you know, working full time on my floor in editorial and everyone else who was black was oftentimes the male person or someone in IT. Um, and that is also a strange dynamic because it's like, we are both here, but we're not here in the same way. And, and that kind of worry that, you know, I don't want to come off the way that maybe other people might come off talking to someone in a male position and whatnot. So really wanting to like straddle both worlds and, and be in those spaces of, was something else entirely that I probably could have written a book about. Um, but yeah, it's, I, you know, I think that there is this other sense, you know, of working in industries like publishing where there are a lot of women kind of around you. Uh, there's that sense of competition that often comes out. I mean, we have it with Nell and Hazel because they are both black women. There's this uh, assumption that they will be friends. There's this assumption they'll think the same way and how do they, you know, uh, bump off one another, et cetera. But also just like, I mean, Maisie and Vera, the two white women working there, um, there's also like a hint of tension between them and, and kind of cattiness. And it's, it's partly because of that, that scarcity, right, uh, for women of color and also women at the very top. So, a lot to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> there certainly is. And there's something, um, again, I'm not going to give it away, um, but there's a moment um, towards the end when we meet, when we have two women in the same room, and you've talked a lot about your identification with Nella, um, and this other person is has uh, a name that's similar to you. Um, <laughs> Right, and so I was thinking, yeah. That, yeah, and I was thinking that in some way, um, I'm a China person, so I think in these terms, yin and yang, like with each, so Nella and Hazel are kind of yin and yang, each with a dot of the other inside them, and they got a dynamic yeah. relationship. Do, how would you describe the way that they fit into a, a picture as a whole? Totally, totally. Um, I, absolutely. That's absolutely the case. And, and Hazel really represents in a lot of ways all the things Nella could be if, if things were different, I'll just say. Um, <laughs> she's very, I mean, Nella wishes throughout the book that she was as cool as Hazel. There's this worry that you know, her white boyfriend will now kind of be attracted to Hazel because Hazel's just so much shinier and cooler. Um, and I really wanted to have that that dynamic because there is oftentimes that thing that can I am like tiptoeing around the spoilers, but the thing that pushes that the thing that pulls them together, that pulls Nella to Hazel of, oh, you have natural hair too and you work in this white space, like we are the same kind of black person. But then that's of course not the case because we're all very different and all have different opinions and politics and all that stuff. 
um, that also causes them to kind of propel off one another. And, and, and Nella just, yeah, I'm, I'm like trying to get around the saying too much. But I also wanted to have that same, kind of similar thing with Kendra Ray and Diana, the, the two older uh, women in the book who were kind of the forebears for Nella's existence at Wagner Books, because they were best friends at one point in their lives. And, um, you know, their, their experiences in the publishing world as black women 30 years earlier, um, because there's, there's that other storyline as well. Um, I'm realizing I'm not explaining any of it. Sorry. <laughs> um, but that really affects everything as well with Nella and Hazel. Again, I feel like I'm, I'm probably giving too much away and not enough at the same exact time. This, this book is so great. It's such a thriller and it has so many plot twists and turns that it's like, I had to think long and hard about how to ask these questions. <laughs> um, just getting back yeah. very briefly to the women thing. In Australia, um, we, there's a, you know, the feminist movement has a particular saying, it comes, it's, it's destroy the joint right? And um, the, the destroy the joint movement. And it comes from a right-wing shock jock uh, complaining about women women in power, particular women in power, as they want to destroy the joint. And like women are like, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> burn it down. Yeah. Can the, house, can the house be fixed or do you have to burn it down? Um. I've, I've literally said burn it down in other interviews. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, even though as I like sit with my book behind me and burn it down. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it really depends what, I mean, this isn't the question you asked, but I, I feel like it links into another question I'm often asked, which is, do you think things are getting better in the publishing world? Um, and there have been things that have pointed them in that direction in terms of book deals happening, at least uh, in the states that I've been aware of, um, better deals happening for Black authors, um, a lot of wonderful Black books coming out last year, last, last few years, and this year coming up that are so diverse um, in the sense that they are not all one genre, they're not all sad, you know, so one specific kind of topic, I do feel like... Um, those avenues are being opened up a little bit more, but I also do feel like it's such, it really is in the foundation um, in the way that books are published, the way that the publishing industry uh, works. It's hard. I was talking about being hard to, it's hard to be a black person working in publishing, affording it, but also again, if, if black people aren't given the right advances, um, they can't really write a book and, and, just do that. They have to do other things and that takes away from them. Whereas, I mean, we had a whole publishing paid me thing happen a couple of years ago on Twitter where people were talking about how much money they got. And it was just wild. It was absolutely wild. There's a whole spreadsheet out there. Um, and I really don't think that changes until, yeah, I mean, you burn it down or really start making people of all industries look at the bones of their, their businesses. Um, how are you hiring people? Where are you finding people? Are you finding people from your best friend? Um, like someone you know who's already in the industry because like oftentimes it's going to end up being the same people, the same people who can afford to do it. And the same people who can afford to do it are often white people who have kind of historically had uh, support and, and have generational wealth more likely than um, non-white people. So I... Yeah, I think that either burn it down or, uh, you know, build waiting a, for people to phase out. Or build <laughs> <know>? a new one. <laughs> yes, build a new one. That Yes, I, that's a better answer. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily, but um, I'm, I'm also for burning down the house. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's the, the whole thing that you were just talking about is a really big theme in the book, um, the whole idea of diversity and what does it mean. And Nella, um, in this Wagner publishing house, she when she gets when she starts two years before the start of the novel, she's like, we need diversity in the in the in the in the in the workplace, and and they're like, yeah, let's have these diversity forums and stuff. And then they spend the whole <laughs> forum talking about, does that mean we want diverse? employees or do we want diverse books or do we want diverse and so the whole thing kind of like collapses and 
by coincidence, I was just looking in the paper the other day in, in the Sydney Morning Herald, and they've got this kind of like, it's kind of like an agony aunt, it's called work advice, you know what I mean? It's so people write in with questions. Mm -hmm. And I saw this, and I thought, I'm going to throw this question to you. <laughs> I'm going to read this from the paper the yeah, other day. Yeah. I am a migrant and joined the cultural and linguistically diverse network at my organization, but don't want to be part of it anymore. Although I really like working there, I don't think this network is achieving anything. We have had regular monthly meetings for more than a year now, but no action has come out of them, and there's no real plan either. This could be directly from this book, right? Um, and so they go, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you give me advice on how to communicate in a very assertive way to the diversity manager that I am leaving and why? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, oof. that's, that is hard. That is really hard because that I've been there, that responsibility, like when I left publishing, feeling like, oh, but I'm the only one I can help other people get here and, and it's conflicting. Um, I mean, I think being, I don't know, this isn't for me to say from thousands of miles away. <laughs> I don't think they're listening. Think it's okay. Honest. Yeah. <laughs> I do think being, I do think being honest is really important. I think that, again, I, I can't speak completely for, uh, conditions there because I sadly have not, have not been and, and, but I, I do feel like there are there is enough material out there. There is definitely enough awareness out there that like these conversations need to be had, and why those conversations are important. And I think that that could be the start of a really interesting conversation where it can be useful and used to create items of action. And and I remember being there in my my diversity committee with a few of my coworkers, and we would. We had, we tried a lot of different things um, and it felt impossible and it felt like a band-aid. And, you know, I think that, that like what the question asks about like saying, you know, we haven't had any action yet. I might even say if the person wants to stick around um, to make a, just a list of three action items because and they could be as small as maybe we have a suggestion box in the office um, where we talk about, or like a um, kind of confession box that's anonymous um, where people can put, oh, this microaggression was said to me. Um, kind of feeling that there's a place where this can live, but kind of still keeping people feeling a little safe. Um, but then I, that does need to eventually, that wall needs to come down and, and these conversations need to be had face to face or zoom to zoom, um, or better face to face, zoom but to I, zoom. I do think it, it takes time. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe we counsel this person not to leave. <laughs> I mean, but also I want to say, you know, cause this is the other thing that's really hard is like taking care of yourself is so important. Um, and, and I really do think it is a case by case basis. So if it's, if it's that, and there's also other things like, you know, definitely take the time to, to leave, but also, you know, maybe you can still kind of enact that change from the outside. I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> Linda. <It's so> hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, we're going to have questions in about uh, six or seven minutes. So if you're thinking about them, um, you can start thinking, and I'll tell you when to line up with the queue up at the microphone. You know, one of the we're going to go on to a uh, another topic that's brought that just a theme, I suppose, in the in the book as well, and it's a theme that you see in in most. Um, well, not just um, black American literature, but African literature and so on, um, and certainly. Uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's um, Americana. Um, I don't know how many of you have <laughs> read uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, but oh, great! Um, the, there's the whole thing is the, the the story is punctuated by these chapters that take place in a hair salon, and hair and Nella's hair journey, as as it were, is such a, an important part of both the plot because we've got um, a hair salon that becomes kind of this pivotal um, location um, in, in the book. And hair is plays, uh, the whole conversation around hair 
permeates the book. So I'd love it if you would talk a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so hair is really the first, I mean, the book really starts with hair in a couple different ways, but one of the ways is, is Nella um, and the smell of uh, something that smells like her, her uh, smells like her hair grease. She's like, who, what is that smell? And she hears that there's this new um, employee working there. And then she's like, this must be a black person. And so that's kind of the moment where she's like, yes, like, <laughs> this is going to be great, um, finally. And it's the thing that, uh, like I was mentioned before, it's the thing that really initially pulled her to her because there's also, of course, the stigma of black hair. Um, really in any forms, I feel like it's been kind of, a polarizing thing, depending on if you're natural, if you have a weave, if you straighten your hair. And so for me personally, um, I'm going to step back a little bit and say that like, I have had a very uh, tumultuous hair journey in the sense that when I was growing up, I, I really wanted to have straight hair because that's what all my, my white friends had. I like draw pictures of myself with straight, perfect ponytails um, to put back when I was playing basketball and because I would be at sleepovers and everyone else would be doing everyone's hair, but my parents were like, don't, don't let anybody touch your hair. No one knows what to do with your hair. Um, and I was glad, uh, but I was also bummed because like I wanted to be in on that, you know? And so I relaxed my hair, started straightening it, like firming it at 10, which was the age my mom said, you can do this. Um, and I did that for more than 10 years. And it's not a very comfortable experience. I will say, if anyone's thinking about it, <laughs> it is definitely an investment. And um, it's, it's like, uh, uh, I would encourage anyone, Americana is a wonderful reference. I love that book so Me much. Too. What she does talking about hair. It's beautiful. Um, but also Good Hair, um, the documentary by Chris Ross, which came out, I think, 15 years ago, all about the black hair industry and the lengths that we go through to make our hair XYZ uh, for whatever reason. And so there came a point for me personally, um, for various varying reasons, but really a Black Panther documentary that made me think about why I had been doing that for so long. Um, and I cut it all off, the whole thing. Um, and I felt for the first time, like I, my hair was exactly, like it matched how I felt and I have to say like that's my personal hair journey but I've had so many similar conversations with other black women about this and I so I knew that would be um really essential part of Nell and Hazel's relationship because it's it's political like it, it really can it's so political and I am glad now that you know young people have so many more and I say like young people I'm 29 but like I do feel like there's a generational <laughs> difference now when young people see Issa Rae, they see these these uh, black hair on Instagram and there's just a, a wealth of options now, um, whereas like at the time it was pretty normal to straighten your hair, uh, at least where I was in Connecticut. So. <laughs> um, I, I grew up in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and the afro was the thing, so... <laughs> They were breaking away from right. that. Yeah, Came exactly. Back around. Yeah, it's come back around. Um, is, does anybody want to um, start queuing up at the microphone? You can please be welcome to stand there if you like. Otherwise, we will carry on. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, we're talking about mm -hmm. that generational um, aspect of things as well. It's really interesting. Um, the... The, the, she, this whole thing about um, social media and Jesse Watson, this character Jesse Watson, who appears as a YouTube star, um, and he's this kind of um, iconic, cool black guy who Nella really looks up to. And what is it that Jesse Watson represents to Nella? Yeah, I mean, he he is kind of, well, he's, he's various things. For Nella, he is that kind of outspoken, um, blacktivist, the guy who really takes a stand on everything, and especially regarding race. And 
um, is able to articulate those things in a way that just commands attention um, in that kind of, kind of in that, that male way, I guess. Um, and, but for, I also put him in there because he represents beyond Nella, this kind of, uh, which I kind of alluded to earlier, the idea of commodified blackness, which, which Hazel in her own way um, represents too, because Wagner books sees, sees them, you know, as opportunities to really like show we're in touch, right? With the, with the pulse of the, of the present day and all the youth and stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's funny though, I will say, and I don't say this often, but Jesse was a character that I had been writing years before uh, oh. for a different book. Oh. And yeah. And so it was, he really, for me, when I first started writing him, I was thinking about, you know, what if the, the Black Panther Party, what if there was someone who kind of, uh, the, we had that today, and, and Jesse came out of that thinking for me. And, and he, um, when we meet him and we see his first YouTube videos and so on, he does not code switch. He just, he is Jesse Watson. No. Yeah. He's a complete, he is what he is, right? Yeah. Um, we have some questions. So yeah. can, can you actually see the people or not? I don't know if you can. I, I think they can swivel, but maybe not that hard. Yeah. Yes. Oh, very good. Okay. So yeah. yes, first question. Hi, um, thanks so much. I just wanted to know what books you're reading at the moment. Hi, thank you. Um, Ooh, what books I'm reading. I'm reading so many books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, a few that, let's see, from last year, I will say, because I'm reading a few that haven't come out yet. Um, but, I mean, last year, uh, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton, um, amazing story about music and race and, and set in the in the seventies for the most part. Um, it's an amazing, amazing book. That's also just another kind of representation of blackness that I haven't seen really necessarily in books. Um, Black book by Mateo Escarapur, uh, which we kind of joke it's like the, the brother to the other black girl because it's also set in the workplace, but it has a male black male protagonist working in um um, uh, it's not marketing, but uh, selling things. I don't know why I'm forgetting what the industry called. Um, it's eight o'clock here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so those are a few. But also, I mean, for me, I I, I always return to Passing as by Noah Larson. Um, that book really inspired me in a lot of ways and influenced the other Black girl in a lot of ways too. Um, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, I wish I could go on, <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could listen to you forever. We've got a new question. Okay, thank you. Um, and thank you for the book, which so, so vividly evokes the sense that I think many of us have experienced from different ways of being the outsider, being the first, the kind of intense self-monitoring, the, the self-criticism from the top of your head to the tip of your, show, your, to, your, your toes with your shoes. Um, it's very powerful. And also, I, I liked your anecdote at the beginning because my own experience of being a, one of few women in workplaces was the importance of, to of conversations in the women's toilet and the women's locker room. They're, they were crucial. Yes. And I'm interested in your story because you seem to have expected the other woman to take the initiative, to speak first. And I was just wondering why... why did you speak first and she didn't respond? I'm just interested in the dynamic because I'm a person who will talk to anybody I don't know. Um, but I just thought that dynamic was interesting. Um, and I wondered, uh, wanted to hear a bit more about that because it was typical of many of Nella's interactions in the book as well. Now, I do understand why you don't speak to power, but to speak to someone who you thought would be an ally. Yeah, thank you. That's, that is such a good question. And I don't think anybody's ever asked me. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, and that's, and that's even where I like, I mean, I look back on this all the time and I, I can't, can't blame, I don't blame her. I'm, I'm actually kind of glad we did. <laughs> that sounds terrible. But like, I do wonder <laughs> if we had talked, like, would this book have happened? Um, because it also comes from my own uh, kind of anxieties um, of, like I mentioned earlier, wanting to be 
liked and also though being afraid of rejection. And so while I was, I was definitely intimating like the eye contact, doing the first, like I definitely nodded and was like, you know, I, in my head at least, I was doing those things. Um, and I also got the sense though that she didn't really want to talk to anyone. Um, and I, I will share that I, you know, I found out, I found out who she was um, in terms of why, where she'd come from, because I knew she had worked there before and it was part of like some moving around the office. There was like construction or something happening. Um, and she didn't really talk to anybody that whole time. Uh, and that, which is not, again, like I can only assume that maybe she was burned out because I get it. Um, and I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that I also could have taken part in that interaction. And, and so those kind of hidden, um, not hidden, but those nuanced moments of, of, of how much can get lost in, in body language uh, and what we assume about one another, what we assume someone else will say, and, um, and that doesn't happen, those, those are communications. Those communication problems are things that I definitely uh, wanted to touch on in the book, too. So thank you for your question. I, I, I appreciate your reading. I wonder if we could have a short reading from the book, perhaps a passage you had the most fun writing. <laughs> um, we have a few minutes. Mm. Um, can you do a short passage for us? Yeah, I, yeah, let me, let me see, let me see. Um, I want to do a fun, a fun one. I mean, uh, let me do a short one too. Let's see. I saw the, the, the woman Perhaps standing. Oh, sorry. I saw I saw the woman standing at the microphone, nodding enthusiastically at the idea of a reading. So I thought, okay. <laughs> you got it. How about maybe that first, that maybe uh, the interaction with Nella and Vera sure. and Hazel and Maisie yeah. that we kind of alluded to. Um, okay, so sorry, everyone. I should have been prepared for this. You'd think by now. Um, okay. <laughs> All right. So this is the point where uh, Hazel has just entered um, Vera in Nella's, well, Vera's office. And Nella is about to tell Vera how problematic she thinks Chartisha is, um, but it has not gotten that point because they're interrupted by Maisie introducing her new assistant. And Vera and Maisie are powerful <laughs> editors. Yeah. Yes. Very important to me. <laughs> <laughs> Face to face, Nella could see Hazel had one inch, maybe two on her. Today, her locks were free of any constraints, sprouting spiritedly from her scalp and pouring down the back of her baby blue blazer. Nella grew suddenly aware of her own wrinkled gray V-neck t-shirt underneath an even more wrinkled gray sweater, of her kids, dirty and basic. Welcome to Wagner. I've heard such marvelous things about you. Vera nodded in Maisie's direction. You're working for a great one here. Maisie batted a hand in a gesture of, oh, stop it. Yes, I know, said Hazel. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here at Wagner. I almost can't believe it's happening. And we're excited to have you. Where are you coming from? Nella cringed ever so slightly, embarrassed for her boss, and worried that Hazel would be scared away so soon. That question. Oh, how publishing people love that question. She'd first been asked this by Josh, Wagner's sales director at the Keurig. Nella hadn't known what he'd meant, so she'd mentioned her Connecticut hometown, telling him pretty much everything about it, just short of geographical coordinates. She only understood when Josh said to her, a bit impatiently, ah, interesting, and where in publishing did you last work? Nella had looked down at Zora Neale Hurston's face, printed on the side of a mug her mother had gifted her, and said, nowhere. I was in food service, she clarified, and that had been the end of questioning. But Hazel provided the appropriate prerequisite, a small magazine in Boston. I lived there for two years and decided to come back here a few months ago. I like New York too much, and I wanted to return to the nonprofit that I started up in Harlem back in the day. Maisie nodded with noticeable pride. Nella, in the meantime, marveled at Hazel's omission of what she presumed was another reason why she'd left Boston, 
because it was such a shitty, racist city. Boston, such a great college town, remarked Sarah. <laughs> and I, I think I'll leave it at that. Oh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was going to ask you to go on because it gets really funny. Oh. Why don't you go on? Oh. We still have a little bit of time. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, no, 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 it's okay. Um, yeah. Here we go. I'm, um, so yeah, Boston, such a great college town, remarked Sarah. I know, Hazel said, but even so, it's a lot quieter and cold. I really miss New York's energy. She furrowed her brow as though a particularly unpleasant corporate memory were washing over her in that very moment. Noah watched her curiously, spotting a small gold stud above Hazel's left eyebrow, so tiny that it could only be discerned with particular facial expressions, such as this one. Had Hazel received nasty emails from her old job's HR department about her locks? People are starting to complain about the odor coming from your cube, the note might have said. Or maybe something about eyebrow piercings being too unprofessional. Nala had been to Boston only a handful of times, but she'd read enough to know that Hazel probably hadn't had an easy time. She could already see Hazel telling her all about it after work, dishing stories over gin and juice when Vera chimed in. Yes, it really is quite cold. We think we get snow here, but up there, it's a different animal entirely. Maisie knows all about that, don't you, Maze? Oh, that's right, said Hazel good-naturedly. She didn't seem bothered that her use of the word cold had been misunderstood. Weren't you telling me that you were born and raised in Boston? From diapers to my dissertation, Maisie chirped, and my first job is in Boston, too. It'll always be my home, she placed a hand over her heart, but it's definitely not for everybody. The food scene is dreadful. Vera, do you remember that awful awards dinner up in Cambridge? And with the introduction of this memory, she and Vera were off for about three minutes, going back and forth about every course, sparing not one extravagant detail. Now let's get... <laughs> Should I keep going? <laughs> <laughs> well, just that bit about what Hazel's reaction is to all that. I think that's okay. very funny. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I keep stopping. Nella stretched her face into as little of a smile as she could get away with, prepared to exchange a knowing glance with Hazel as they waited for the conversation to circle back. But when she tried to meet the girl's eye, Hazel didn't look bored. She was actually smiling and cutting and, oh my godding, right along with Vera and Maisie. At one point, she contributed a joke of her own and even nudged Maisie with her elbow. Nella frowned, a little bummed that her glance hadn't been reciprocated. She was a little surprised, too. She couldn't remember when she'd first ventured to touch her boss, but it certainly wasn't her first day, probably not even her first month. <laughs> That's so good. Thank you. Thank you. And we, <laughs> thank you. We've got another question. Thank you for your patience. Oh, thank you for your reading. It was worth the wait. <laughs> um, thank I, you. I grew up in the 60s and wanted straight hair, and it just wasn't to be. I get it. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, Your hair is beautiful from here. Oh, thank you. I, I could let it down. No, um, <laughs> the question is, the question is, um, do you have, what's, what sort of feedback did you get from your readers? And was it different based on any of the, the groups or intersectionalities of the groups that you actually touch on in your book? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I mean, it's been all over the, the place. I mean, the, the ending gets a lot of responses. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I'll, I'll just say that um, one generally a particular group of readers um, understands the ending and, and appreciated the ending, and a, a lot of other readers did not uh, for various reasons, um, which has been really interesting because I think it really speaks to, I mean, a lot of different things in terms of uh, what readers kind of go into this book expecting. And um, I really wanted to, you know, stay true to what I kind of thought was 
uh, at least for me, a realistic interpretation of, of what someone going through these things would experience. So, so that's been interesting. Um, a lot of white readers, it's been uh, fun kind of hearing about the, the hair uh, perspective, um, 4C hair, 4B hair, the whole cataloging system is something that um, a lot of uh, white people just don't know about. So hearing about people Googling um, the hair conversations that are had in this book was, was very satisfying to me because um, that was another thing that kind of came up early on for me just as a writer, like how much of this should I explain, right? And how much of this um, should I just put out there? And, and I'm glad that I did just put it out there because I've gotten a lot of feedback about how this feels just uh, not like the Black uh, authentic voice, but just another example of, of Blackness and conversations that um, feel real. So so this that's been good. I mean, I won't say, obviously, everyone has loved it. And that's what kind of what I expect. What I, that's what books are supposed to do. They're supposed to polarize. And, and I just hope, you know, um, like I said earlier, that these conversations about you know, microaggressions about bringing your full self to work, um, all of those things, I just hope we keep having them and, and, and really start changing things. Maybe not burning down, like when it's <laughs> maybe building up and maybe a little burning, a little building. Yeah. Time. <laughs> Thank you. This is, <laughs> Thank that, you. This is such a great book, and it's, it's a really fun read, but it also does, as you were just saying, it's a really good conversation starter. It asks a lot of questions. It makes you think. It makes you want to, it makes you want Zakia Dalila Harris to write her next novel now and publish it yesterday. <laughs> I'm working uh, on it. <laughs> um, please. <laughs> Please thank, uh, please thank Zakia Dalila Harris for being with us today. Thank you for coming to Adelaide by Zoom next time in person, I hope. Yes, thank you so much, Linda. This was so much fun. I it really was. appreciate it. It was fun. <laughs> thank you.